Well, hello, fellow sojourners. I hope this video finds you well. I know it's been a, a trying few weeks for many of us, and I, uh, I have to admit that I, I really, really miss being with you guys. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, the time when we can come back together. Uh, but in the meantime, as we all do what we can to prevent the spread of the virus, I just would encourage you guys to pray for each other and that we would allow uh, the isolation between us and the distance between us and the way it makes us feel uh, just to remind us of how important it is to gather together. Um, it's a good thing to miss being together because it's a good thing. It's a gift. And when it's taken away for whatever reason, it just feels wrong. So let's make the most of it and try to be intentional and in checking in on one another and trying to be creative and still pursuing community. Um, even if it's in a little different format uh, than what we're used to, like what we're doing now. Uh, trust me, this is a, a little awkward for me as well, um, but let's try not to get distracted by it. Uh, the fact that I'm, I'm sitting um, in my office in front of a web, webcam and not standing in, in front of you guys um, at our building on a stage is, is really just a, a minor detail. Um, we, we need the word and we need community um, we can get the word and we can still get community. It's not like we're used to, but um, God knows what we need in times like these. And just be praying for us pastors as we just continue to kind of navigate a situation that's new for a lot of people. And it's definitely new for us. Uh, but you know, the fact that I had to point out uh, that this is a bit awkward means that we've, we've come a long way. Uh, if you were around Sojourn early on, you would know that there was a lot of awkward. So uh, really, this is kind of a, a throwback Sunday, so uh, let's uh, let's go ahead and and get in the Word this morning. We'll be in Mark eight chapter uh, or Mark chapter eight, uh, verse thirty one through thirty eight, and then we'll also be looking at uh, verse one of chapter nine. So let's go ahead and read it. it says starting in verse thirty one, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, let's pray. Father, we, we are in desperate need of your word, and we are so grateful, God, that we have such free access to it. We're grateful that, Lord, we are not only able, when things are normal, to meet together publicly without fear, but Lord, when that when that is taken away uh, due to something like coronavirus, Lord, we still don't have to fear taking a video and, and, and putting it out for the whole world to see. Um, it's just an amazing opportunity, Lord. It's just an amazing time in which we live, and we know that it's the exception. We know that so many around the world, Father, um, we know that they do not have the right 
to gather when things are normal and good. Lord, we know that they're persecuted. We know that many are killed because of what they believe. We know that carrying your cross in some of these other places, Lord, um, is just a whole different picture. It's hard for everyone. We know that. Uh, but Father, we are blessed at this point in time in this country in which we live, and we are grateful for it. So I just pray, Father, that, that this morning that, uh, Lord, you would just speak through me, God, that my own uh, fears and uh, anxiety or whatever, Lord, may be present in my heart that I may not even see, Lord, just due to the, just the weirdness of all this uh, would not be a distraction, Father, but that we would just together look at your word, Father, and just seek to be built up and to be strengthened, Father, that we may reflect your glory as you designed us to. We're grateful again for your grace. We're grateful for the gospel, Lord. Help us to learn better today what it is to live by it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, a man by the name of Robert Burns once said that the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. And if you know who Burns is, you know he missed on a few things, but he got that one right. And I'm not a very good planner, but I'm one that really likes to know the plan. And I can remember our first family beach vacation. We get to the hotel, we get unpacked, sun's going down, and Renee just decides it's a good idea to, that the family take a walk on the beach. So we get down, we get down to the beach, and I'm looking up and down the beach thinking, wow, there's a, there's a lot of space to walk here. Let's go. And I turn around, and before we knew it, the kids were plopped down. They were digging in the sand, making sand castles, throwing it at each other, just having fun. And I just kind of started getting a little bent out of shape because we came to the beach to take a walk. That was the plan. Like, what are we doing? We're, we need to go walk. And uh, it, was, it was just hilarious because I, I'm, I'm so, my personality, I just, we make a plan. And I like to make plans. Well, actually, I'm not very good at it, but I like to know the plan at least. I, I like to stick to it. And here my kids are just having fun at the beach. This is why we, this is why we came here for vacation. And I'm getting bent out of shape because we, we came down here to walk along the beach. And Ray just kind of laughed at me. And when I realized what was happening, I laughed too. But we just, we just like to make plans. And when, when we make those plans, we, we form expectations. And, and we like to see those expectations come to fruition. And it's interesting to think about the measures we take to ensure that our plans unfold the way we expect they will. We'll do things we, we never thought we'd do, like sprint through airports or yell at people on the phone or even do things that put our lives in danger. You know, these are just random examples. I'm not necessarily speaking from personal experience kidding. But what we can do is uh, some pretty out outlandish things when our, when our plans are threatened. Uh, we don't like it when our expectations aren't met or when things don't work out the way we think they should. We'll take extreme measures to make sure that our plans succeed. And we might even rebuke God like Peter does in our passage today. In fact, I might venture to say that many watching this video have already done just that. More on that later. But in today's passage, we're going to see some plans go awry, and we're going to see some plans being executed to perfection as well. We're going to see two different plans, two different sets of expectations, and we're going to see those two plans meet in a high-speed, head-on collision, and it's not pretty. And what Jesus is about to do at this point in the story is he's about to leave no doubt about the reason he came into the world, and it's not going to land softly on Peter and the disciples. And understandably so. 
up to this point, they had seen Jesus Jesus do some incredibly amazing things, like perform miracle after miracle, and being the greatest teacher who ever lived, teach the truth in such a way that even his enemies were impressed and astonished. Everything about Jesus was incredible. From his words to his actions, his divine kingship was on clear display. And can you imagine the excitement that was building in the hearts of the disciples, the expectations that were, were forming for what they thought was about to happen, and, and even better, what their roles would be when it did. In their minds, Rome was finally going down, and they were best buds with the means by which that was going to happen. And other than the scriptures, yes, that was sarcasm, why in the world would anyone think at this time in the narrative that Jesus' destiny was a cross at Golgotha? But again, in the disciples' defense, it certainly was not what was being taught about the coming Messiah by the religious leaders of the day. They had completely butchered Old Testament passages concerning Jesus' first coming, and the Jewish people just bought into it. They had fallen for it. And in view of the false teaching, the thought of, of the Messiah crushing Rome was not just appealing, but for the disciples, it was, it was certain. Then add the fact that Peter had just publicly ascribed the title of Messiah to Jesus, to which Jesus didn't disagree, can you imagine how they may have interpreted that? Can you imagine the expectations that were forming in their hearts? But in Mark 8.31, Jesus confronts their misguided thinking. And more directly than he has before, he sets the record straight. And it pretty much sends Peter into orbit. Instead of laying out a more detailed plan to his disciples as to how this expected messianic takeover was going down, we're told that, that Jesus began to teach them. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Verse 31. 32 goes on to say that Jesus said this plainly. No parables this time. The scripture says here that he was teaching them, no doubt proving from the scripture that this was the plan. You see, Jesus knew what was happening in his disciples' heart at this time, really the entire time. And he knew that now was the time to clear the smoke. Now was the time to leave no doubt at all that he came to die and be raised again. Not to conquer the powers of Rome, but rather to conquer the power that fueled Rome. That fueled the entire worldly system. The power of sin and death. And little did the disciples know that Jesus was about to lead them into a battle that was far greater than anything Rome could offer. He was about to face off and conquer a power that made Rome look like a colony of ants. And to hear Jesus so clearly state his intentions must have been nothing short of shocking. Because what Jesus began to teach that day dismantled every expectation Peter and the disciples had probably formed up to this point. This was not their plan. And judging by his reaction, Peter may have thought Jesus had just temporarily lost his mind. So Peter, being Peter, pulls Jesus aside. And according to verse 32, we're told he began to rebuke Jesus. He began to rebuke the one he just confessed was the Messiah. Now, we read this part of the passage, and if you're like me, your initial response is to think, the nerve of Peter. Are you kidding me? Show some humility, man. Rebuking Jesus, the one you just confessed was the Messiah? But guys, honestly, this is where we need to realize that we can all be just like Peter. For example, do you ever find yourself questioning God when your plans don't work the way you desire? when life takes an unexpected turn for the worse? Are you prone to get upset when the expectations of good 
or good news or good results is, is un unexpectedly met with with bad bad news or bad results. Have you ever gotten sinfully angry or even resentful when this happens in life? I have. And at times my life can look a lot like the bad version of Peter. But why does my attitude get so sideways? Because God tells us in Romans 8.28 that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Oh, we know that all things work together for good, but we don't always act like it, which means we don't always believe it. And as believers, when our hearts become sinfully upset or angry or resentful or unforgiving about the circumstances of life or what's happened to us, we are indirectly communicating to God and everyone around us that Romans 8.28 must be wrong, that all things don't really work together for good. And if we're not careful, we too can approach God with a tone of rebuke, just like Peter does in our passage today. But all things do indeed work together for good because God says they do. And that includes those things that cause us pain and stress and discomfort. Things like COVID-19, things like unexpected deaths and families, or troubled marriages, or troubled children, or health issues, you name it. Friends, as, as, New, as New Testament Christians, we're not promised comfort from this world. We're not promised health, or wealth, or prosperity. We are promised an amazing eternal future through faith in Christ. But even that promise is attached to pain, because as we'll see today, that promise is attached to a cross. So how does Jesus respond to this, this passionate rebuke from the leader of his disciples? Well, we see here that he meets passion with more passion and then proceeds to bring Peter back down to earth. Verse 33 says, But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Wow, I'm not sure you'll uh, find a sterner rebuke from Jesus aimed at one of his own. And why is that? Well, listen to what William Barclay has to say here. I think he really has some insight. He says, why did Jesus so sternly rebuke Peter? Because Peter was putting into words the very temptations which were assailing Jesus in that moment. In his humanity, Jesus did not want to die because he knew that he had powers which he could use for conquest. At this moment, he was refighting the battle of temptations in the wilderness. This was the devil tempting him again to fall down and worship him, to take his way instead of God's way. And now Jesus is here hearing that same voice that he heard in the wilderness coming through the mouth of one of his most loyal followers, one of his best friends. Barclay goes on to say, the tempter can make no more terrible attack than when he attacks in the voice of those who love us and who think they seek only our good. That is what happened to Jesus that day, and that is why he answered so sternly. Barclay goes on to say, not even the pleading voice of love must silence for us the imperious voice of God. Not even the not even the pleading voice of love must silence for us the imperious voice of God. So good. And let me ask you, are there people in your life you know love you, but at times can try to persuade you to do things you just know before God you can't do? Have you ever found yourself in contention with someone you love over something you know beyond a shadow of a doubt God is asking you to do or not do? Well, welcome to the entire life of Jesus. And if you've walked with God for any length of time, I bet you can think of a few examples if you think hard enough. 
Brothers and sisters, worldly wisdom is confronting us constantly. And sometimes it comes from people who love us. And you may even hear it from your fellow brother or sister in Christ. You see, many times people who love us know what we love, good or bad. And they counsel according to our preferences and our leanings. Because they love us, they want for us what we want for ourselves. Guys, this is why our best friends as believers must be committed believers. If you aren't surrounding yourself with friends who love God and have a grasp on what a missional life should look like, then you're probably not making the best decisions in life. For those of you who would call me a friend, don't, don't tell me what you know I want to hear. Tell me the truth. And hopefully those two things align. But I know my flesh well enough to know that at times they don't. I need people in my life to love me. I need to be told the truth. You see, Peter was convinced that he needed to change Jesus' thinking. He loved Jesus, but he didn't understand the cross. And therefore, even with loving intentions, Peter might as well have been Satan himself, standing there trying to convince Jesus to change course. I love what R.C. Sproul has to say about this interaction. He says, Jesus showed Peter that there are basically two ways of looking at things, God's way and man's way. This is the great divide between godliness and godlessness. The godly person is deeply concerned about the things of God, but the godless person has no concern for the things of God. Instead, he is preoccupied with this world. We all need to evaluate ourselves on these criteria from time to time. We need to ask ourselves, where is my heart? What is my chief concern? Am I preoccupied with the things of this world, or does my heart beat for the things of God? Am I seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and letting everything else come as it will? Or is there some other priority that drives me? some ambition that compels me, some goal to which all of my energy is devoted in this world. That's good stuff. And at this point in the narrative, it seems pretty clear that Peter and the disciples would have answered those questions posed by Sproul very badly. But let's ask ourselves, how would we answer those questions? Friends, we are, we are all in process, just like the disciples were. And we should thank God for his patience in this process because he is patient with us. So Jesus keeps rolling in verse 34 where it says, In calling to the crowd with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, so in Peter's eyes, the situation is not improve, improving. The plan is uh, not just for Jesus to die, but for all those who follow him to die too. I'll tell you, if there was ever a moment in time that a guy could hear a pin drop in a crowd, that was probably the time. Because what Jesus said just must have seemed scandalous to these guys. And this is where some of you might have some questions. I mean, this, this is a famous passage. Um, and what Jesus sounds says incredibly noble, but what does it look like to take up your cross and follow Jesus? I believe the gospel. and I have a relationship with God, but how do I know that I'm taking up my cross? How do I know that I'm following him? What does it even look like to do that with an eight to five job and a family and a busy schedule? Those are great questions. And looking back at our passage, what does Jesus say that we must first do in order to follow him? He says we must deny ourselves. You know, we live in a time where we are inundated with so many messages that focus on self. Love yourself, understand yourself, promote yourself, protect yourself, esteem yourself, be yourself. But Jesus comes along here and says, no, I say deny yourself. And what he is saying is, if you want to come after me, you can't constantly be preoccupied with you. If you want to come after me, you must submit yourself to me. 
you must deny yourself and follow me. Now, don't misunderstand. There are many occasions in life where you have to consider yourself, right? I mean, Jesus would want you to consider yourself in certain situations. You have to make decisions regarding yourself to stay alive. But is that where it ends? Do you just primarily think of you and what you think you want or need? Or do you think of you in view of him and what he wants for you and from you? Because if you look to him first, if you're filtering decisions in life through what he thinks and what his word says, then you are by default denying yourself because you're submitting to a higher authority, a higher power. And though it seems a little risky to some to hand over control, once you take that step of faith, you quickly begin to see that, that he actually loves you better than you can love yourself. He will provide for your needs when you follow him, and he'll do it way better than you can. Matthew 6.26 says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Friends, Jesus can be trusted with your life more than you can. He formed you. To deny yourself and hand that control to your Creator can only lead to better things in the end. Just think about the things that we as humans create. Most anything we create that has any degree of complexity requires maintenance. And that maintenance is done by someone who has understanding and capability that transcends the thing needing to be maintained. A very simple example would be my car. My car needs to be maintained from time to time. Oil changes, brakes, etc. Just think what would happen if, if I never did any maintenance on my vehicle. What would happen? It would eventually break down and wouldn't be able to accomplish the purpose for which it was intended. Take cars away from people and they become pretty useless because they were designed for people. Take people away from God and they don't necessarily become useless. They become sinful and destructive because they were designed for God to bear His glory. And when they start bearing the glory of something else, things get pretty bad pretty quickly. Guys, to humble, to deny ourselves is really the humble admission that we need our Creator. We need His forgiveness and we need His guidance. He knows things about us that we don't know. He has understanding and resources that we need and that only He can provide. To deny ourselves and follow Him isn't a sad surrender or the end of life or a crutch. It's the beginning of real life of life that will never end because as our Creator, He is able to keep us well-maintained and functioning the way He designed, which brings Him great glory and us much good. So the first thing Jesus says is required to follow Him is to deny yourself. Next, He says to take up your cross. Now, it's a short walk, I think, between denying yourself and taking up your cross. In fact, I think taking up your cross is really, in a way, just restating uh, the fact that we need to deny ourselves, but it's it's a more extreme expression of it. It's one thing to practice self-control, to be disciplined, to do or not to do something against your own desires. The world actually promotes denial of self for all kinds of reasons, the main one being self. People deny themselves many things for many reasons, and most of those reasons are so they can live better or longer or happier. But the chief end of, of, of much of our denying, and at least on a worldly level, is a better life now, a better us. So we deny ourselves things, but it's because we love ourselves many times. 
And I can't think of too many voices in this world that are saying, deny yourself so you can die, at least directly. You see, it's a, it's a radical thing to take up our cross. I mean, think about it. The physical act of carrying a cross. To carry a cross wouldn't allow a lot of opportunity for other things. It would be all-consuming. It would require a lot of energy and our full attention. It would definitely take our eyes off the things of this world. It would be extreme self-denial. And when you choose to follow Jesus, you will take on a new identity. You will change course. You will begin your mission to put the old man in the grave. And God has called us to go about it in such a way that when people see the change, they might as well see a cross on your back. Because what they should see is your old self, the old man, on a death march. The de denial should be so noticeable that people, especially people who knew the old you, should clearly see death as the future for your old self and your old desires. Just listen to what R.T. France has to say here. He says, what Jesus calls for here is thus a radical abandonment of one's own identity and self-determination. And the call to join the march to the place of execution follows appropriately from this. Such self-denial is on a different level altogether from giving up chocolates for Lent. It's not the denial of something to the self, but the denial of the self itself. It's death to the old self. It's radical. The Apostle Paul says as much in Colossians 3.3. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Friends, this is not just denial for a short time, and, and it's no shot at Lent. I think there's a lot of good that can come from that. It's a great reminder uh, of what the season's about. But it's not just a temporary thing. And then you can have your chocolates. This is death to the sinful flesh being carried out in a ruthless, methodical, determined fashion. This is denial with a clear intention. You know, zombie shows and movies have, have really been a hit for, for quite some time now. I don't watch too many of them. Um, but I think people stomach some of the gore and the violence contained therein because it's easy to justify it. Because these zombies we see on the screen really aren't people anymore, right? I mean, they yeah, they were once people, but now they're something entirely different. Their original identity has left them, and they're just dead men walking. Well, if there's anything positive we can learn from some of these shows is that, that we need to treat our flesh exactly the way we see these zombies being treated, with ruthless violence and unrelenting attack. And, and you notice Paul's language in, in Colossians 3.3. He says, you have died. But then in verse 5, he says, put to death. So you see a, a positional approach and a relational approach, an active approach. Your flesh has died, and you've been raised with Christ to new life. The, the moment you believe, it's a done deal. You've been raised in Christ to new life. But that dead man, he's not what he used to be, but he's still able to walk around and bite people. So we have to be about the business of putting him down, right? And there's no better weapon than the way of the cross. Radical denial. Starve that man. He is dead anyway. But if we stop there, if we stop the denial, even denial to the point of death, radical denial, we would be stopping short. 
because while the Christian life undoubtedly involves the denial of the old man and the sinful self, while it undoubtedly requires us to radically restrict and restrain ourselves, I think there's an even greater calling. You see, our Savior didn't come to just call us to die. Yes, that's got to happen. The old man has to go. But he's called us to die for an even greater purpose, in order that we might live. Thus, the last part of his command, which could be the most defining words we have for the Christian life, maybe the most famous words of Jesus, which are, follow me. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, while the denial is an absolute vital component of submission to Christ, the Christian life isn't primarily about what you don't do. It's not primarily about restraint. Well, so what then? What do we do? What does it look like to follow Jesus? Well, let's look back at our Colossians 3 passage, starting in verse 12. As we saw earlier, Paul addressed what denial looks like earlier in the chapter, and now he's describing what pursuit looks like, starting in verse 12, what it looks like to follow Jesus. He says in verse 12, put on then. Remember, he just told us what to put off earlier in the chapter, but now he's saying put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And man, I could spend a lot more time here. But to be quite honest, friends, we spend a lot of time here every single Sunday. So stay tuned. Because what we intend to do at Sojourn, week in and week out, is simple. We really just want to help you understand how to follow Jesus. Because when you do that, when you do those kinds of things I just mentioned from Colossians 3, you reflect the glory of our awesome God. And none of us do this perfectly. But we, we do lean on the perfect word of God to lead us. It will tell us everything we need to know about being a follower of Christ. Because from the very beginning to the very end, Christ is in focus. So moving along, Jesus goes on to address the why of the matter, because many will ask that question. Why follow Jesus when I seem to have my stuff together pretty well? Why change course when it seems like my life is pretty together? I mean, the skinny on most Americans is that we have way more than we need. So why change course? What's at stake? Well, Jesus very graciously, graciously explains here what's at stake. And the stakes are high. They're out of this world. In verse 35, he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 12, and 13. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you notice any parallels there? Just love how the Bible interprets itself. It's its own best commentary. And Jesus continues in verse 36 where he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You see, Christ shows us that when we boil it down, there are really only two options. In the end, you will either be with him or you will be without him. Carrying your cross results in acceptance from Christ. Rejecting the cross results in rejection from Christ. I don't see another option here, nor do I see another option anywhere in the scriptures. Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his, on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And skipping down to verse 41 and then verse 46, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Paul says it this way in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10. He says, this evidence, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Now, notice how Paul says in verse 10, here in our, our passage in, in Thessalonians, that the Christians here in Thessalonica believed and that their belief was the basis of their acceptance. So why doesn't he say, because you carried your cross, you will be received when Christ comes with his mighty angels? Because that's what he says here in Mark. It's a very similar passage, but in one place we have Paul saying that you will be accepted if you believe. Another place, Jesus is saying, you'll be accepted if you carry your cross. So which is it? In John eleven twenty five and 26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So what is Jesus saying here? Because he doesn't use the same words in our passage, passage today that Paul uses in 2 Thessalonians or even his own words in other places in the Gospels like we just read in John. He seems to emphasize action here, but there's no direct mention of faith. Is he contradicting Paul or even contradicting himself? Are we really saved by grace through faith? Well... The short answer is, of course we are. And what Jesus is showing us here is that the mark of true faith will always be action. I didn't say perfection. I said action. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from a man by the name of James Boyce. He said this regarding what some describe as, as tension between faith and works in the scripture. He said, we are saved by grace through faith alone, but we are not saved by a faith that is alone. Friends, true faith according to the scripture, will always produce change. 
it will always produce fruit. And what Christ, and, and, and I think that's what Christ is saying here. If you want to follow him, you must believe in him. And how do you know you believe? Look at your life. Ask yourself, is there change? Can you see where the old man is starting to die and the new man is beginning to hold sway? Do you feel the, the battle waging between the flesh and the spirit? And Do you at times feel the weight of the cross? And does that weight drive you to the throne of God as a child is driven to his father when he's faced with something that's just too big for him? Has your identity changed? Because Jesus tells us here that the stakes are high. Will you follow him or are you ashamed to separate from the world? Because if you're ashamed of him, he says right here that he will be ashamed of you. But if you follow him, if you take up your cross and follow him, if in faith you give your life to him, he will save you. And it's interesting to me that Peter and the disciples just seem to totally miss something Jesus says early on in the passage that is so significant. The little phrase at the end of verse 31 in, in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus describes what happens after his suffering and death. He says, and after three days, I'll rise again. You see, Peter was so shocked at what Christ was saying about his suffering and eventual death that he missed the best part. They were so bothered and distraught that Jesus' Jesus's plan didn't, didn't line up with theirs. They completely missed the thing that made it all make sense. The resurrection. This is the life he gives. The life that has overcome death. The life that never ends. That statement should have stopped Peter in his tracks. And it should do the same to us. But it didn't stop Peter because it wasn't in his plan. It wasn't how he envisioned life with Jesus. Peter was so caught up in the here and now, he totally missed the part where Jesus wins. The part where Jesus overcomes the greatest enemy known to man. Death. But Peter, like so many in this world today, couldn't see past his own plans and his own desires. He was still a slave to his own expectations and and how life should go in, in his mind. But as we know, things get better for Peter. He doesn't remain in that condition. There would come a day when he would wake up and he would choose to unashamedly carry the cross of Christ, even to a martyr's death. So tell me, how have you envisioned life with Jesus? Do you know what it is to have his life, to exchange your life for his, to put the old man on the death march and take up the new man and follow Jesus and truly live? You know, it's kind of surprising that there are 39 verses in chapter 8 because verse 1 of chapter 9 belongs with this passage. In fact, most of your Bibles are divided that way. You see the, the first verse in chapter 9 kind of in the same section that we're in. And in reading it, it kind of seems out of place either way, but, but it's not. Jesus says in, in chapter 9, verse 1, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And really what we can see here, guys, is, is the kingdom is, is the kindness and the patience of Jesus towards his disciples. He knew what their expectations were. He knew the intentions of their hearts. He knew they were expecting him to, to break out in power any time and take over the world as their promised Messiah. And even though they were wrong in their timeline and their expectations, he went ahead and gave them a little encouragement anyway. It wasn't packaged like they wanted it. But nonetheless, it was a hint of what they were hoping for. And so Jesus tells them in 9-1 that some of you will indeed see power. Some of you will be able to, you, some of you will be alive to witness the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, 
exactly what Jesus was referring to is, is widely debated. And, and there are men who are much smarter than I am that would disagree with me on this. But based on the time parameter and, that he gives, I, I think Jesus was referring to two different events um, that happened in tandem. I think he had in mind the destruction of the temple coupled with the establishment of the New Testament church. And many, many say that Jesus was referring to the transfiguration. That was a big event. That was a kingdom event. But that only happened six days after he said this. So why would he say some of you will not taste death if none of them standing there would taste death before it happened? What he seems to imply in that statement is that some will be dead when this event he has in mind or when these events he has in mind happen. And Pentecost is the same way, with the exception of Judas. All the, all the disciples were still alive. All, all the original guys were still alive. They were all there to see it. So what I really believe, especially considering the context and the, and the mentality of the disciples, is that Jesus was, refer, was referring to the establishment of the church coupled with the destruction of the temple. And we can see in those two things a parallel to our passage today. You see the plan of God and the plans of men. We see God's plan, the birth and establishment of, a, of the New Testament church. And then we see man's plan, the Jewish world domination. And, and the temple in Jerusalem was their symbol of hope for that to come to pass. That's what they wanted. They wanted to rule the world in the name of God and in the name of them. And that temple was just a symbol of that. But in 70 AD, a guy named Titus, he was a Roman general. I did not name my son after him. But he marched into Jerusalem, and those hopes were severely crushed. But to the eyes that could see, for those standing there in that day, they could see how clear would it have been that salvation is truly only in Christ alone, as they observe the thing that so many Jews place their hope in be utterly leveled by the Romans. How clear would it have been that God's plan for the salvation of man was their Messiah on a cross, not a glorious temple made with stone and wood. And the few who were still alive to see the destroyed temple and who were there that day with Jesus and Peter and the disciples would have also been witnessing something else in 70 AD. They would have been witnessing the New Testament church, alive and well, sweeping through Asia Minor, thriving in Egypt, and expanding throughout the whole region of Rome and Greece never to be stopped, not even by the gates of hell. So let me close with this question. Are you following Jesus? Because when Jesus said you must take up your cross and follow me, he actually meant something. And we would do well to look long and hard at what he meant. Because one day we will see the kingdom come in power, and it will be power like no man has ever seen. Because Jesus did rise from the dead, just like he said he would. And he will return with his holy angels, just like he said he will. Are you one whose identity is being shaped by the Lord of Heaven's armies? Will you be one who, who spent their entire life identifying with Christ, or will you be one who was ashamed? I hope you've embraced the cross. I hope you've identified with Christ. I hope you're living a life that says, I'm not ashamed of the one who died for me and who has risen. I hope you believe. Let's pray. Father, we are weak people. We believe, Lord, but help our unbelief. So often we try to impose our plans and our expectations onto the mission 
And when we do that, it really messes things up. But we're grateful, God, that you see us as in process and that you are willing and able to faithfully stick with us and walk with us in spite of all our weakness and sin. God, we are grateful that you have chosen to use us as partners in this gospel mission that you've put us on, this great commission, Lord. Help us as we seek to deny ourselves radically to take up the cross and to follow you into true life, into true fulfillment. God, we look forward to that day that we can stand before you knowing that we weren't ashamed of our glorious Savior who did so much to redeem us and to buy us back from the pit of hell. Lord, help us. Help us to live as your people, to reflect your glory in a world that so desperately needs to see it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we will be in touch. Love you all.